0: Last week, our family spent uh, some time at my parents' in South Texas. Uh, and one morning, I did my Bible reading out, outside, uh, kind of overlooking the back pasture. And the sun was rising, it was beautiful. Um, but I happened to be in Isaiah 6. Many of you will know it, where the Lord kind of pulls back the veil uh, and gives Isaiah a, a glimpse of his, his glory. And Isaiah is undone, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. But I wasn't affected. I had no awe, no, I felt no wonder at this self revelation. My eyes moved right along to the next text in my Bible reading. Until it seemed that the Spirit stopped me and asked, What just happened? The Majestic One. Is He that unimpressive? Has He become that familiar? It was a sobering wake-up call. When did the Holy One become so familiar that I treated His... Self-revelation, like I would a tree I see every morning on my way to work. And I mention this because we're going to talk about glorious things today, and some of them we've talked about before. And the question is, will they be so familiar to you that your eyes will glaze over and will leave unamazed, unimpressed? by God's self-revelation. I don't want that to happen. So, I want to pray for us now before we read and ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us truly sense the greatness of God's self-revelation. Father, we know that without Your Spirit helping us see Your glory And what you've done for us truly and fully, uh, these words that we read will be just black ink on white paper and we'll all walk away unimpressed, um, unmoved. So come and enlighten our eyes. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The statutes of the Lord are righteous, rejoicing the heart. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul." And we pray that you would do all of those things in us. Revive us. Cause our hearts to rejoice. And enlighten our eyes. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a few weeks since Hebrews. Bring everybody up to speed. Recall that some, some Jews had become Christians, but they're, they're now wavering in their commitment to Jesus. Uh, and part of that is due to their own passivity. They're, they're drifting away, and the other part is due to, to persecution. People are threatening terrible things to get them to abandon Christ. And you can even imagine the two being related, and, and think of a Jewish-Christian saying to himself why keep suffering right wouldn't it be easier to return to our old ways in Judaism the Jews would get off our backs rome would leave us alone and besides didn't god speak in the old covenant anyway why bother with jesus if it means so much sacrifice and hebrews exists to address that problem and it does so primarily by magnifying the greatness of Jesus. Seeing Jesus' greatness is what compels perseverance. And so in chapter 1, Jesus is the greater word. Jesus is greater than the angels. In chapter 2, he's greater than Adam. In chapter 3, he's greater than Moses. Right, And now since chapter 5, we've, we've been learning that Jesus is is the greater priest. And with his work as high priest, he he has introduced the greater covenant. So argument after argument has shown that it's foolish to abandon Jesus. To, To do so is to abandon all of the glorious things that the old shadows had anticipated and were now here in Jesus. So chapter 9 continues that effort, and verse 15 here provides a perfect summary of what we're covering uh, today. It encapsulates the main thrust of chapter 9. Let's read it together. This is verse 15 of chapter 9. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we see here who, what, and why. We see here a person, Jesus, He, he mediates the new covenant. We see what He did to establish the new covenant. Well, he died to redeem His people. And then we lastly see the purpose of it all, to guarantee us the eternal Inheritance, And the rest of the passage is just explaining these three pieces here in verse 15. So, let's tackle them one at a time. And I want to do it under these headings. The superior mediator, the superior sacrifice, and the superior assurance. So, let's look first at the superior mediator. Verse 15 calls Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And when you hear the word mediator, uh, you may think of that person who kind of comes in and he settled disputes between two parties. They try to get this party over here to make some compromises and this party over here to make some compromises so that at the end of the day, they can both sign the papers. That's not the kind of mediator Jesus is. He's not over here trying to convince God the Father to make some compromises. The terms of our relationship to God are not up for negotiation. God sets them in place as His gift to mankind. We're worms. We're wretches. And if He relates to us... He does it on his terms. He gives the covenant to us as a gift. The problem is that none of us can meet the terms. Jesus comes to meet the terms for us. That's the beauty of the new covenant. Right? Jesus is God's appointed agent to settle what needs to be settled for us to enter a relationship with God. So Jesus comes to enact the covenant and make us one with God. Now, let's back up to Moses for just a second. Moses mediated the old covenant. He enacted it. And under, and under that old covenant, there were various regulations for worship and, and how people were to approach God. You know, you got the temple and the sacrifices and the priests. And God put all of it in place to, to, uh, to show them two big things. Right? One, it exposed the problem. You are separated from God, and you need a bloody substitute to enter God's presence. That's what the Old Covenant taught Israel. And the other thing it did was it pointed to a greater sacrifice. Right? Chapter 9, verse 8, told us that the Holy Spirit, way back there, with all those regulations, the Holy Spirit was indicating something, that the, that the way into God's presence was not yet open. Okay, a greater sacrifice, a greater substitute had to come. Verses 11 to 14 tell us who that is. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And then it goes on to say that Christ entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then Christ offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Coming off that, in verse 15, he says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So the old covenant could expose the problem. You're all separated from God. It could even. Uh, point to the solution. You need a bloody substitute. But the old covenant never brought it. It could never bring that greater sacrifice to fruition. Jesus did. Okay? And that makes Jesus' role as mediator superior to Moses. So Jesus mediates the superior covenant and we're going to see here because Jesus brings the superior sacrifice. Now, that, that needs a bit more explaining, so that's where he heads next in the passage, the superior sacrifice. Why was such a death necessary? Why? That, that's a common question you might encounter with your Muslim neighbors or your, your Jewish neighbors or, or other people who aren't familiar with the Bible storyline. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die this way? Why such a bloody human substitute? And part of that answer comes with the word redeem. In verse 15, he mentions it there. Since a death has occurred, that redeems from them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We talked about this the other day, that redemption has to do with a, pay, a payment being made to loose somebody from captivity. Alright, so think back to the Exodus with me. Right, the people were in slavery. They had no ability to liberate themselves. Somebody greater than the people. somebody, Somebody greater than Egypt and Pharaoh. God had to liberate them. But He did it at the cost of the firstborn. But he didn't take Israel's firstborn, did he? No, in their place, God provided the blood of the Lamb. So Israel's freedom from captivity came at the cost of a lamb. He fast forward to Jesus, far more serious. We are slaves to sin. We lack the ability to liberate ourselves from sin... Someone greater than us, someone greater than sin, God had to liberate us. But He did it at the cost of His Son, Jesus. Jesus is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our freedom comes at the cost of Jesus' life. That's what every single sacrifice following that Exodus moment signified. It's what it taught the people. You need a bloody substitute to be free. That's part of the answer for why such a death was necessary. Redemption under the new covenant could not take place without a bloody substitute. The other part of the answer comes more fully in the passage uh, next in verses 16 to 28 and there we see, we, we look at the nature of a covenant in general and uh, also what the Old Covenant anticipated specifically. So that's the other part of the answer here of why he had to die. And um, if, you, if you look there at verses 16 and 17, it says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established... For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, you might think, where's he going? I thought we were talking about covenant, and now he's talking about will. Well, the same Greek word stands behind both of our English terms. So, he hasn't changed the subject on you. A number of our English translations do. Some say it's better to keep the word covenant. So, like the New American Standard translation, it's got covenant all the way through, and that's super helpful. So, instead of reading this as what starts a will, it's better to read it as what a covenant demands when it's broken. It's the way some will take it. So, the covenant demands your death. So if you take it this way, the sense would go like this I'll re- reread it here, is where there's a covenant involved, it's necessary for the death of the covenant maker to be endured when transgressions have taken place, like the ones he mentioned in verse 15. In other words, the bloody sacrifices showed the people what happens to covenant breakers. They die. That's what they deserve. And that comes into force. You feel the teeth of that covenant when they're put to death for breaking it. Unless there's a substitute. Hence the sacrifices. Unless a substitute dies in your place. Now others read it as we see it here in the ESV. That is, it's simply drawing upon a broader point where the concepts of, of what we'd call a covenant and a will, they kind of overlap uh, with one another. So, so they begin upon the death of the covenant maker. So, you know, if you've written a will, that will and all the stuff you've left to your siblings or, or wife or, or uh, children, those things don't come into effect unless you're dead. So he then makes the broader point of overlap and says, hey, didn't we see that kind of thing in the law of Moses? The covenant didn't start without blood. A death had to occur. Wasn't that the case? And so he goes on in verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood uh, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, so that's the old covenant, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins." So, I think both readings of this text are, are, are valid. Either way you take these verses, I, I actually don't think those two readings are mutually exclusive. The law did, in fact, come into effect when Moses sprinkled the people with blood. At the same time, the law demands death for covenant breakers. The sacrifices showed that in order to enter God's presence, you needed another to die in your place. And so we could say that even the blood that started the Old Covenant signaled what would need to occur for the people to have fellowship with God. A bloody substitute who could actually stand in our place and accomplish our forgiveness. That's what we needed. We needed someone to take the curse of the law for us. And that's what came in Jesus. Look at verses 23 to 26. He says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now let's stop there. Jesus became the mediator of the superior covenant because Jesus brought the superior sacrifice anticipated by the old covenant. How was his sacrifice better? Well, he doesn't bring the blood of bulls and goats, he brings his own blood. Right? Verse 26 says that he sacrificed himself. And that's super important because you ain't an animal, you be human. And humans need a human sacrifice. It's also important because it's Jesus' own blood. Right? Only Jesus' blood would work. Unlike any other human, Hebrews has told us repeatedly that Jesus was perfect and without blemish and without sin. So he alone qualified to become the sacrifice. So he brings his own blood. Jesus' sacrifice also puts away sin for real. Verse 26 says that it puts away sin. The sacrifices under the Old Covenant could only picture forgiveness. Jesus accomplishes forgiveness. Verse 28 will say that He was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now, that's straight from Isaiah 53, the great prophecy of the suffering servant. Our passage began talking about the transgressions committed under the first covenant, didn't it? As long as we bear our transgressions, when we break God's law, as long as we bear those things, we can't enter God's presence. But the good news from Isaiah 53, verse 12, is this. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. He didn't deserve to be numbered with the transgressors. He chose to be numbered with the transgressors so that he could bear our sins and take them away. Okay, So that we could be forgiven. And then Isaiah 53 also talks about making us righteous before God. Jesus brings a superior sacrifice also in that it was once for all. Once for all. So the other high priest had to make their offerings repeatedly, verse 25 indicates, but not Jesus. He didn't enter into God's presence to keep making more sacrifices. If that was the case, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Meaning, that's what I think it means, as Son... Jesus has existed forever. And if the sacrifice he was going to make didn't at the end of the day, if that sacrifice he made on the cross didn't cut it. Then he would have been offering himself repeatedly since Adam's sin and Adam's children sin and Noah sin and everybody else sin on and on generation after generation would keep needing this sacrifice. But that's not what happened. Verse 26 says that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. That is a remarkable statement. All the sins of all his people in all the world for all of time, Jesus put them away in a single moment. All the sins of the Old Testament saints... All of the saints the last two thousand years, all the sins of you and me, past, present, future, God put them away in a single sacrifice. Tell me how much the blood of Jesus is worth. You cannot calculate it. It is of infinite value. This is why heaven sings, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. They worship Jesus because of the sacrifice He made. His sacrifice is also superior in that it purifies the heavenly things. Twice He mentions the earthly copies. Verse 23 and 24. So these are the holy places made with hands on earth. And we read about them at the start of chapter 9. Verse 21 there mentions the tent and all the vessels and the tabernacle out in the wilderness. So these things were but pointers to the, the heavenly dwelling, God's heavenly dwelling, which puzzles us because what in the world needs to be purified from God's heavenly dwelling? And the answer is we do. We need the purification to enter. The only reason the earthly copies, the tabernacle and the temple, the only only reason those things needed to be purified, ceremonially purified, was because of their association with guilty people. It was the people that made them unholy. That's why they needed to be sanctified. In a far greater way, Jesus purifies us such that the heavenly places will never be defiled by our presence there. That's how far away He's put your sin from you. That is good news. These are the glorious things. And there's more to come with one last point, the superior assurance... So back to the purpose statement in verse 15, Jesus mediates the new covenant for this purpose, it says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And when he he says called, don't merely think invitation, don't think dad calling the kids in for dinner, nobody shows up. This call is a divine summons and it effects in the person what it sets out to do. This call brings us into union with Christ and all of his saving benefits from start to finish. It's not like, oh, I called you here, but it just didn't work out in the end. No, if he calls, you're going to get there is the point. If you truly belong to Jesus, God will work by grace such that you receive the eternal inheritance. And that eternal inheritance in Hebrews 4 is the eternal rest. We talked about it as that time when there will be no enemies. Creation will be bountiful. Everything will be rightly ordered. Everything will be made whole, all in the presence of God. It's the better country in Hebrews 11. It's the city whose designer and builder is God. No sin will be there. No injustice will be there. No partiality will be there. No civil unrest will be there. No lies will be there. No dangers, no viruses, no death will be there. All will be rightly ordered and made holy in the presence of God. All whom God calls to Himself will receive that inheritance. He did not plan and design an inheritance to leave it empty. He designed it to fill it, to fill it with people who are going to enjoy it. Jesus not only died to inaugurate the new covenant, he also rose from the dead to bring us into it. His work is of one piece. And that's what verses 27 and 28 are are, are showing us here. It says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Not everyone will be saved. Chapter 10 will add that some will face a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. But for those who are eagerly waiting for Jesus, that's not what you will face. Why? Because that fury of fire you deserved was satisfied at Calvary. In the person of Jesus when He died in your place. So Jesus will not come to deal with your sins if you belong to Him. He already dealt with your sins fully on the cross. Your worst day is behind you. If you're a believer, your worst day is behind you because God's judgment for you fell on Jesus there. Now, glory awaits with the return of Jesus. Now, you could see he hasn't gotten to his exhortation yet in chapter 10, verse 19. We'll get there eventually. But you can see how even these things are encouraging those who are on the brink of apostasy. You, you, could, you could see how, how, that, how these things, these glorious things we've been discussing, would keep these Jewish Christians from abandoning Jesus for the old covenant. The old covenant couldn't get you to glory. The law couldn't guarantee that you're going to receive the inheritance. Jesus does. Everyone He calls, He will get you there. You can see how these things might keep someone in the race when they just want to throw in the towel and just quit. Some of you might want to quit after the last couple of months we've had You're trying to be faithful day in and day out, and it seems like everything keeps falling apart in the world. The church ought to be the one place people are finding answers and hope and unity, but they can't even get it together on Facebook. Some of you are exhausted by the injustice and the world's brokenness, and you like to just throw in the towel. What's the point? Listen, everyone that Jesus calls, everyone will receive the eternal inheritance. That's guaranteed. That means your labors are not in vain. Your prayers are not in vain. Your tears and your struggle for justice and speaking into these situations will one day, it will give way to glory at Jesus' return. If anything, that means labor all the more. Preach the gospel all the more. Pray all the more. The The eternal inheritance is secure for all of the people that God calls to Himself. And He's at work, even in these situations, to call people to Himself. Jesus is a superior mediator because He brought the superior sacrifice and by so doing, He secured for us the superior assurance. Some of you listening might not belong to Jesus. Consider the words of verse 28 again, that it is appointed... For man to die once, and after that comes judgment. A day is appointed for you to die. It could be this afternoon. It could be on your way home from work this week. It could be next year. It could be at 86. Can you stand before the Holy One in all of your sins? God's answer is no, you can't. None of us can stand before the Lord in our sins. And that's why we all need Jesus. He alone puts away sin. We will die. Judgment will come. But those who trust in Jesus will find themselves forgiven and saved. So come to Him. Trust in the work that He's done that we read about today. Take God at His Word here. People like you and me, He died to free us from our sins. That's what you need most. More than any other freedom gained in this world, as good as, good as freedoms as they may be, we need forgiveness of sins most if we are going to be right with God and right with one another. Are you amazed by the blood of the covenant here? Not the blood of the old covenant, but the blood of the new covenant. Jesus' blood. Does it amaze you? Do you sense its infinite value? Have you ever been in a place where you've said something like this to yourself? I don't know if I could ever be forgiven for blank. you you fill in the blank that abortion that abuse of power that mistake you made that, that lie that manipulation that sexual deviancy that slander that laziness I don't know if it can be put away. There are too many times the penalty is too great. I don't think anything can cover it. You don't know the blood of Jesus very well. Sometimes, Our self-pity and self-loathing may even be a a form of pride that's unwilling to see how valuable Jesus' blood truly is. And we've seen here that it's of infinite value. It's totally sufficient, not just for some of your sins. The ones you think can be forgiven... No, it's sufficient for all of your sins. No matter how gross they are, however many they may be. If you belong to Jesus, he covers them all, he puts them all away. It's like that word from Micah seven 8, Micah chapter seven, verse eighteen. He says, Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Jesus puts away sin like that. He casts all our sins into the depths of the sea. I've been watching a World War II documentary. And uh, one of the episodes was talking about how the German U boats sunk like 400 of these massive carriers out in the Atlantic. We're talking like the big container ships that were moving from between Britain and the US and sunk them, trying to deplete the resources in both places but I was just sitting there thinking 400 of those ships I'm telling Rachel this 400 of these massive ships you'd think they'd kind of all stack up on top of each other sinking in the ocean till they're sticking up out of the top of the water and she says you know how deep the ocean is right <laughs> you know how big it is right Like really big and really deep. (laughs) They don't just stack up and stick out of the water. They're just gone. That's what our sin is like in the ocean of God's steadfast love. He puts it away forever. And it goes unseen and forgotten about. That's why He says, Who is a God like you? You show me, of all the gods of the world, who is a God like this God? There is no other. And because this is our God, because He enjoys putting away sin by the sacrifice of His Son, we ought to delight in doing the same. What a joy it is to forgive others the way God has forgiven us. What an opportunity we have before the world to reflect what our Father in Heaven is like as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Let us tell others about where they can find such forgiveness. If we're convinced that Jesus' blood is of infinite value, wouldn't we be offering it to everyone? Like if If you were hiking and you stumbled upon the fountain of youth, Right, this unending fountain that renews and restores and brings life to people. You'd be telling everybody about it. Everybody dying and wasting away with cancer. You'd be telling, come, come, I found the fountain. Just get in. But this is real. And it's better because it brings reconciliation with God. Right? And so we can say, come, look what I have been shown. Right? Come, there is a fountain filled with blood. We sing this song, don't we? Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and anybody, any sinner who's plunged beneath that flood, loses all their guilty stains. Behold the blood of the covenant. And then lastly, So many people are grasping for peace right now. So many are longing for true and lasting justice to fill their neighborhoods. So many are looking for a government built on truth that stands for righteousness. So many want to see sons and daughters playing in the streets and laugh with laughter and without fear. And yet, so many are looking to the wrong leaders and to the wrong powers. Into the wrong stories to make that happen. Only one man, only one power, only one story will bring the day of glory Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly waiting for Him? Not just heaven, are you eagerly waiting for Him, the person of Jesus? central to the Christian's hope is the return of Jesus. Would anybody know that by what you're living for now? Could anybody read your Facebook page and conclude, now there's a man whose central hope is Jesus' return. Now there's a woman whose treasure is in heaven. What happens when a couple expects a child I mean, they're telling everybody about the due date. They're moving furniture and painting walls and buying cribs and they're researching the best doctors in town and calling others about what's the best foods and the best equipment to prepare this stuff and they're throwing showers and praying for safe delivery and they're cackling over the baby's progress and, oh, there's an elbow, it just rolled across your belly and it's so cute. Right? They adjust every. in their budget to meet this new child's needs. It affects everything. Anyone looking into their lives would be like, oh, they're, they're expecting a baby. When people look into our life, do they say, that's a man who can't wait to see Jesus. That woman right there, she longs for her King. Would your zeal for His kingdom convince your peers that He's returning? Or would it be overshadowed by a zeal for another country? And a far lesser one at that. How eager are you to see Jesus? He will appear a second time. But not to deal with your sin. But to save those... Who are eagerly waiting for him. I think we're going to sing a song now about the return of Jesus. So, Gary and the others, if y'all want to make your way up, am I supposed to pray before we sing? We're we going to sing. Pray? All right. Father, we thank you for your text. Of Scripture. We thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and we pray that we would take these things home. They would become part of us this week. Set our hope in the return of Jesus. We thank you so much for the sacrifice that has taken away all of our sins. Now bring the inheritance, we pray. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.